Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Today, 100 p.m. is celebrating a major milestone, episode 25 of 100. Our special guest is Cody Rice, product manager at GoGuardian here in Los Angeles, And I have to say, I think you're in for a real treat today. We talk a lot on this show about practical tips for becoming a PM and succeeding in the role. And Cody has a tremendous amount of actionable advice for you, including thinking about yourself as the product. Intrigued? I hope so. Let's dive in. Why don't you uh, kick us off by introducing yourself, tell us your name, your role, anything to ease us into the conversation. Perfect. Uh, So I am Cody Rice. I am a product manager at GoGuardian. We're here in El Segundo. Do you live out here on the west side? I am very spoiled to live on the west side. I actually live about a 10-minute drive from work in Manhattan Beach, so... Yeah, I'm very spoiled to, to not have to deal with L.A. traffic on a regular basis. Well, and the sun came out today, and I was driving, and I said, I'm going basically to Manhattan Beach, which is one of my favorite places to hang out if I can find an excuse like this one to be on the west side. Do you surf? I attempt to surf. <laughs> I Actually, the uh, the CEO and the head engineer at GoGuardian have been trying to teach me how to surf. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm starting to get there. Yeah, okay. And have you always been out in L.A. or did you come from somewhere else and ended up here? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Texas. Um, I spent 18 years in the same house. Um, And then I literally was like, I'm doing anything to get away. So I went to college in Colorado and then lived in Australia, back to Colorado, uh, worked in Silicon Valley for a while, was in Indiana for a while, and then finally made it to L.A. Um, And then I've taken some stints to to like work remotely um, in Europe for a while. But but now I think L.A. might be defined as home. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing place to call home for sure. Definitely. It sounds like there's a theme of abundant nature in all of these other environments that you sought out. Is that part of who you are, an abundant nature guy? Uh, definitely, 100%. I think uh, I, I always joke that I feel like my my soul is split between like the mountains and the waves and I kind of either am chasing a mountain or I'm chasing a wave or I'm seeing if I can somehow get both, uh, which LA works out, right? Because Big Bear's up, up the hill and then surfs right down the street. That's awesome. Uh, your title here at GoGuardian is product manager, but 
you don't have product manager as a title anywhere else in your kind of long history. You're a young guy, but you have a long history of career adventures. So can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your journey into the product manager role? Yeah, so I can start uh, actually when when I was in college, I was an engineer um, and not a software engineer as, as most people in product management start as, but actually a mechanical engineer. And then I went into aerospace. Um, and then I originally kind of jumped out. I, I played um, in the CrossFit space for a while. I, I did um, some consulting and advising for startups. I also taught myself how to code along the way. Um, and so, and then I ended up at, at GoGuardian and, and through my time at GoGuardian, I kind of, again, did, I think I've probably worked in almost every aspect of the business at this point in some way, shape, or form, um, and then eventually kind of got to a product manager. And I think that's actually one of the things that has is also um, a really valuable quality of a product manager is to be able to understand the perspective of everyone they're speaking for, um, as well as be able to um, be an effective product manager. Because now I have to, have to speak to those people, speak for those people, and kind of uh, aggregate all of those thoughts and, into the decisions I'm making going forward. Who tend to be, this isn't about singling out anyone here no, no, at no. GoGuardian, but when you talk about these people, I think what you're describing is the different departments and different departments have different mindsets and you come from an engineering background. Who are the hardest people for you to learn to speak to and with along the way? I would say, so of course, right, with my engineering background, the engineers were by far the easiest because we just nerd out on something and, and we're bonding. Um, I would say actually the hardest has oftentimes been the leadership, um, simply because the things that make, uh, especially in a startup environment, uh, leadership successful is this very much kind of bias towards action and uh, moving quickly and just pushing to get things done um, whereas oftentimes a product manager needs to like sit and think and kind of digest and then come up with a plan of action based on a strategy um, and so being able to communicate effectively both for and with the executive team is awesome oftentimes uh, both what's the biggest challenge and where you can have the biggest results. Because by effectively communicating to the rest of the organization, kind of the, the strategic direction from the company that's coming down from like a leadership above you, um, you can actually kind of cohesively help them understand like the vision of the company and where it's going. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the executive team because, you know, one of the things that I tell my students pretty much first day of class is confidence. If it's not currently on your sort of self audit of personal qualities, you got to go out and you got to bolster it because the truth about this role is you're oftentimes going to be surrounded on all sides by people who are perhaps more senior than you, certainly more skilled than you or, or domain specific in their skill. And product managers are sort of great generalists, but that tends to mean a bit of a dilution of skill set across a lot of different areas. And then you're dealing, as you say, with, with an executive team and you don't have power. You have all of this responsibility that's sort of being thrust upon you and expectation to get people into alignment and no power. And then you have to also, as you're describing, kind of stand up sometimes to could be the people who founded the company. That would be challenging, I imagine. Very much so. So in real time, uh, like you mentioned, confidence. And I would say that 
it's how different people derive their confidence. I would say most product managers actually derive their confidence from their data and knowledge. Um, and in an engineering capacity, an engineer is going to derive their knowledge, their their confidence, right, from their skill sets of within engineering and understanding the architecture and the data flow and the actual code itself. As a product manager, oftentimes your your confidence and your knowledge in this case comes from the market, right? And so what I so what you're trying to do is you're trying to understand uh, the market forces. You're trying to understand the customers. You're trying to understand the customers' problems. You're trying to understand the problems as well of the business, right? And and what are what are the salespeople struggling with? What are the support team struggling with? Why is design and engineering conflicting? Um, and so what you're doing is is by kind of taking in all this knowledge and constructing frameworks of thought and really kind of graphing out how those pieces interact with each other. Um, now your confidence is not a abstract or artificial one. You are confident in the data that you have and the data that you've collected and how those pieces interact and can speak effectively. And that's when not only are you able to project that confidence outward, but you're actually able to kind of get people to buy in that you are the one to be coming to when they have questions about the, the market knowledge or the how these teams are feeling or what data is most important. I'm so glad that you bring that up specifically because I think that's the other piece is okay, how do I stand up for myself? Another challenge that I've heard a lot from folks is I've got data and intelligence that suggests that the decision that we need to make is this one. And then I've got pressure from the leadership team who may not be as connected to the data as they once were, may have a different agenda that's driving them, pushing to have things be a certain way, which could be rooted in ego, could be, as I say, you know, pressure from investors, from outside forces, or just, you know, generally a lack of connection. And so in that case, do you just sort of put your business case down, put presented and hope for the best? I mean, what advice could you offer somebody who's in that position of being right based on the data? Totally. So what I would say is very often when someone believes they're right with the data, they're, they believe they're right with the data that they have in their hands and they have access to today. And oftentimes um, you can be wrong because you don't have a piece of data that contradicts your conclusions, right? And, and a, you gave a great example, which is um, what if it's coming down from the leadership team, right? And so starting from the perspective that you're working with intelligent rational, logical human beings, uh, everyone has a perspective, right? A lens through which they see the world that's being influenced by these different pieces of data that, that they have, whether it's, you know, how they grew up as a child or whether it's they had a conversation with, you know, a, a competitor that makes them like see something differently. So oftentimes the confidence to be able to push back and ask why someone sees something differently is how you kind of, um, for lack of a better word, level up, right? Because now I can actually say to my leadership team, why? Why it is the data that I have and I make I came to this conclusion off of different than the conclusion that you have, right? And if I can really try, try to understand um, these kind of foundational pieces that are different, it allows me to both have confidence in the decision they're making as opposed to being dif- disenfranchised when somebody tells me we're going a different route, right? As well as be able to effectively communicate with them in the future as well. Because now I can understand that they only need one one to two data points, but if they're from somebody they trust, that's how they think and that's what's impactful for them. So then I can communicate with them by 
I, I don't need a survey, right? I need to go find like one or two leaders who also like reverberate with like the data that my survey um, provided. Yeah, I think the, the sound bite for that is to know your stakeholders is to know their bias. Exactly. Let's go back a minute and, you know, for your background, because, okay, so you're a mechanical engineer and then you're like, nah, and then you're like CrossFit and then that's something completely different. And you sort of found your way into consulting and consulting for startups. You've worked as a data scientist. I mean, you have all of these sort of diverse skill sets across domain, but then also diverse skills across kind of the product management domain. And, you know, the thing I think about product management that makes it equally exciting and challenging is that it does cut across so many different areas of focus. Are there specific skills, in your opinion, that are more must-have than nice-to-have? You know, if you were advising me on starting to level up from zero, what would you suggest would be a good place to go, and what would you suggest I could leave for later? So the biggest piece is, is how do you truly understand the perspective, right? And so my background gave me perspective because I, I was a customer support person, right? I did uh, build uh, sales tools. I have worked as an, uh, as an engineer, right, a software engineer. And so I have actively been in each one of these roles, and that's what has allowed me to be an effective product manager. And so what I would say is if you don't have actual experience as, you know, being a support representative, how can you understand their struggles and what they're going through on a daily basis? In some cases, that's literally just shadowing somebody from a day, or that's taking that role for even a day or two days allows you to more effectively step into each one of those 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 roles and really understand what are their frustrations, what are they feeling, and, and be able to communicate effectively for them. What I think I'm hearing you say is empathy. Start with empathy, start with perspective. Well, you said perspective, but I think, how do I step outside of my own self and start to observe situations and experiences, lived experiences of others, in a way that allows me to empathize with their position. I would even go further and say, not only do you have to empathize with their position, but you have to advocate for their position. So when uh, design comes back with a mock and says, this is what we want to build, I now have to say, we can't do this because this is going to take engineering too long, right? But I can't do that unless I have an understanding of what an engineer is actually facing. And when leadership comes and says, we're going to make this change and um, it's going to be a breaking change and yes, it'll frustrate some customers, I need to advocate for the support team and say, I don't think this is going to work because our support team is just not going to be able to handle the load and they're going to get frustrated with how we're doing this. And so to really be a good product manager means not you have to kind of advocate for whoever's not in the room when decisions are being made. And that perspective and that empathy as you speak to uh, allows you to do that more effectively. One of the things that's striking me hearing you speak about that is kind of the difference between a startup environment versus uh, an environment that's scaled. And most of your experience has been with startups. GoGuardian might be described as a startup. We'll talk a little bit later uh, more about that. But I think that's an important distinction because the smaller the team, 
the less processed, the less sort of defined whatever, the more you are kind of constantly evaluating everything and trying to see it, right? If you have the luxury of coming into an organization that's been stood up, there's already clear delineation, there's already a flow for better or for worse, and it's not usually tasked upon you as a PM to deal with that stuff. So I'm sure there's a question in here. I I guess what I'm looking for first is just your own reflection on the startup environment, why it calls to you and how you think that it's different fundamentally from larger scale organizations or established organizations. Yeah, so to begin with, as you mentioned, right, uh, most of my experience is, is much more the early stage startups, um, whether it's less than 10 people or, or GoGuardian, which is which is right around the 100-person the mark. In a startup environment, there there is almost no process. And if there is a process, oftentimes it's one that was ad hoc and just created out of the ether because something went wrong and we just had to solve it, right? Uh, a hacky solution, if you will, in engineering Hot terms. Hotfix. <laughs> oh, don't get me started. That's 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 bringing back nightmares. Um, but but starting from that that sense, um, whereas like a, a a more established company, right? Um, I used to work at Lockheed Martin. They have already kind of solved all these problems. And when you're talking at a startup, they have the problems. They haven't solved them yet. So. Oftentimes, it's trying to put those pieces in place, trying to identify what are the what are the biggest problems and how do you really address them as a product manager. Comparing that that kind of established experience that you're describing, would you go back into that environment willingly? No, and and I would say this is one of the biggest learnings I had about myself, and uh, one of the things I would advocate anyone, a product manager or otherwise, um, to really understand is is what where do they find happiness, and where do they f- what really draws to them? When are they like most engaged, most happy, most effective? Um, for me, it's when I feel like I have some agency, some control over my situation, and that is something that was that was kind of why I jumped from the the cog in this giant Lockheed Martin system to very much the other end of the spectrum on the startup side is because I felt like I wanted, I felt happier when I had some control and when I had more ability to, to drive decisions and, and have, you know, a voice. But, but, but I traded, I traded, you know, a stable salary <laughs> and I tr- traded uh, a higher risk in terms of, uh, okay, I have options, but they could be zero dollars uh, in a year if, if something goes wrong. Um, so, and that's who I am as a human being and that's what I really enjoy. So the more you can understand who you are, what's important to you and where you are most happy, then you can find a position that's, that's a better fit for you personally. Yeah. The, it's funny you use the word agency and I think, and I advocate for this with people who come to me for career advice is the first bit of agency starts with knowing who you are and what excites you and where you're going to thrive and what motivates you. You know, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I as well thrive in smaller environments and environments that let me get my hands into a lot of things. And early in my career as a leader, I made the mistake of assuming everybody also was motivated that way. So, you know, people would come into my organization and then I would say, you can carve your own path. You can do whatever you want. If you see something that hasn't been thought about, think about it, bring me a process, bring a solution, leave your mark. Isn't that going to be amazing? 
And a lot of the times I found that people just sort of stayed inside their box. It's like, you know, when you're training uh, pets and there's, they call it like an invisible boundary. There's no walls, but they're like, no, I'm here. And that was, you know, perplexing to me. And then I had to realize, okay, it's just different. And so when I talk about agency with people, I say, if you want to touch everything, if you want some control, some legacy, then yeah, I mean, don't go to Apple, right? I mean, I'm sure it's an amazing place to work for a lot of different reasons, but it's not going to be a role, certainly for a junior product manager, where you're going to walk in off the street and then be road mapping and having all right. of this major influence. It's going to be like, no, you're going to groom the backlog is what yep. you're probably going to do. Yeah, and I think I think you nailed it on the head when you said, um, right, it's, it's very much the the expectations and who you are as a person and it's interesting that we have that conversation because go guardian right is is in the education space and so oftentimes in in early hiring we look at we look at people that are hired kind of straight out of that college environment and very often or 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 from large companies as well i will say very much reinforce this which is here's your expectations right like here's your 10 kpis that we're measuring you against and here's your career path for the next like 20 years right or in education you hit these these grades at the end of the year you go to the next level and you hit these expectations at your job and then you go to you know senior product manager and then you go to head of product and then you go to director and then you go to vp and then you go to senior vp right you kind of have this very linear path forward whereas sounds um, like deloitte Right. This this is this is the real world, especially in, in larger organizations. Um, whereas I feel like the people that are drawn towards like the startup, the entrepreneurship, and like you said, right, the people who can really get their hands dirty and want to touch everything and want to have control, um, have kind of almost rejected that mindset. And a lot of times, actually, uh, I would say even even the people that are drawn to product management uh, and the people who are drawn to like leadership roles in general are the people who kind of have have rejected this and they're like I want to solve these problems and when I get frustrated that's like an opportunity for like me to get better the company to get better and just run in that direction um, so a lot of times it does come down to to how you think and and yeah, what 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 is the best fit for you so let's talk about Go Guardian. The way you're describing it, it sounds like it spits out a personal roadmap for you on the other end of something. Uh, why don't you do the proper introduction to the company for our listeners who may not have heard about it? Totally. Yeah. So um, as a starting point, uh, we're about three years old at this point. Uh, I think uh, started in 2014. I came on about two years ago. Um, it's when it started originally. It was uh, actually a laptop recovery. Um, the CEO uh, was scared he was going to get his laptop stolen, so he created a Chrome extension to help him find it if it ever got lost. Was it called Go Guardian? It was actually called Laptop Lookout. Okay. And so what he did was he, he he did kind of the lean startup methodology, right? He created a, a landing page and started capturing emails um, and had people interested in this. Um, and then in, in, those, in that process, one of the biggest people who reached out was, was schools and said, hey, we're buying, at the time, Chromebooks were just coming onto the market. So we're buying thousands of Chromebooks. How do we, how do we like find these things if they get lost? So he, so he was like, okay, well, there's 
thousands of people asking for or thousands essentially of devices that are that I can charge for so he started digging in deeper and then he had more conversations with schools and then schools were like well we also you know want to filter the internet because that's a requirement and he was like well a chrome extension can do that so yeah I'll just make a chrome ex- I'll just add that to the chrome extension and so actually his earliest iteration was was features around um, filtering the internet um, and in the United States it's federal law that if you're providing technology to a student they have to be filtered from obscene material obscene being a work of art or a term of art uh, in legalese means that there's no real definition everybody kind of gets to make it up Um, so california has a different definition than texas right from that stage the first step was i am handing a student a chromebook it's now their personal device it's going home with them as an administrator, I want to feel comfortable and safe handing it off, but as a parent as well, right? Because parents are like, no, 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 this device is not coming into my house and going into my student's bedroom, right? So that was a starting point. That original product was called GoGuardian Admin. Um, the subsequent product we released was called the GoGuardian Teacher. So now that students had Chromebooks, and uh, there's actually an initiative called One to One, meaning they're trying to get each student their own device. Um, and so currently there's about 24 million devices, I think, in education, meaning uh, about one out of every other student. One out of two students has like their Is that a California-specific? No, this is actually United States. Wow. So there's 55 million students in the United States, and there's 20, uh, about 25 million devices. So about one to two ratio at this point. And it's, and it's only going to continue to accelerate over time. The goal is eventually to have every student have their own device for essentially like equal access. How right? the times have changed from my days of school. We had three old PCs and played a day in the life of. Exactly, right? And, and so the, the next stage, um, and so you may resonate with this as well, is when, when a device is now in a classroom, it's how does it, how do you use it as a tool and not a distraction? Right? because I would just switch tabs between whatever game I was playing and whatever I was supposed to be doing as soon as like a teacher walked around to the in the computer lab of like 10 devices right most but, people do that at work every day shh don't tell anybody um, and so now it's so teacher was more of how do I make uh, this device now a tool in the classroom the ability to lock down a student's device and like you know give a PowerPoint presentation at the front of the room or open um, a YouTube video for all your students at the same time so they can all watch it on their personal devices. Okay. Cut them loose to uh, learn at their own rate. And you can kind of like see what your students are doing live uh, and send send like a chat message if a student gets distracted. Like, hey, I see you went off and played a game. Did you actually finish your work? Yes, I finished my work. Okay, you can go play a game, right? So it, it kind of allows this the teacher now to actually see what's going on in the classroom real time and be able to help asynchronously, right? And also gives students can chat back to the teacher, lock them down for a quiz at the end of class. Um, And so now it actually becomes a tool in the classroom and it's not just like a digital textbook and it's not going to be shut the entire time. Um, And then what we're moving towards now is how do you now actually provide the real value that a device provides? Like you don't use it as a tool. To you, this is like access to this world of information that makes you better and allows you to grow and allows you to really learn and improve. And that's kind of the next iterations or how do you facilitate that? So it goes from being safe, safe to have, now it's a tool. How do you really allow students to like get the value that is, you know, your own personal laptop and access to the internet? Well, I love the the story because it's a real story of kind of a series of zoom out pivots. It sounds like it's 
here's a widget, here's a variation of that widget that does a little more, and stumbling a little bit into problem-solution fit and saying, oh, here's the market. Um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a concept that we talk about a lot, and I, I know a lot of people are familiar with it, and of course if they've, you know, read Steve Blank and they've read Eric Ries, then, then they know the discourse, but actually to be in the experience of discovering, whether on purpose or through sort of a series of trials, where your true market is and where the real opportunity is. Although it doesn't really speak to why your founder was so paranoid to begin with, but I guess we'll never really know. I think he just, I think it was actually his, I think it was like his roommate's uh, laptop was stolen. And so he was like, what happened if mine get stolen? And so he was trying to come up with a solution. I think it actually, he found one, his dad just wouldn't pay for it. So he's like, I guess I have to build my own if my dad won't pay for uh, software. I, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, though, even just to hear you describe the application because, well, first of all, because I'm an instructor. So I mean, it's an adult learning environment, but, you know, you're, you're, a lot of the fundamental principles of education apply and then uh, a lot of new principles that we're trying to bring in. So I'm trying to remember myself being back in school and imagining how it would have looked like and felt to have, because what's the age range of, of students with devices? Are we talking as, as like elementary school even? Yeah, so the, the, this is the kind of the part that is changing so quickly and, and um, it's actually really amazing to see. Under the age, uh, or under about third grade, most uh, students aren't really able to like log in to a device. So oftentimes they have like tablets and like group sign-ins um, or they use like QR codes to like sign in. They'll hold like their QR code on their um, That's on their name QR badge. That's still exists. Right, to up, to the, up to the camera and log in. But once they get to about third grade, they're able to log in. So yeah, third graders are now having their own personal, you know, Chromebooks. Um, and it depends on the school. Some of them, you know, they sit on a cart and they pick them up each time they get to class. Some go home and they come back over the summer and they, they turn their devices in. Some it's now like their device full time. And so each each school is kind of making their own decisions about how their students use their devices and how they're, they can be used most effectively. But it's, uh, I would say primarily right now it's around middle school is where most of these devices are going into education um, simply because high school they're kind of like already ingrained and they're already kind of on a pathway to graduating where if you can get a de student a device in middle school it can kind of almost follow them through high school as well so by getting it in earlier there it's kind of like an easier transition into getting it into the higher grades so essentially with the product now and it's in its current state the individual teacher has some sort of interface that allows them to kind of monitor activity at a high level. Like a, all my devices are plugged in. I can see when a light is on and a light is off. I mean, this is a simplification, but is that sort of the concept? Uh, even a little bit more granular. So, for example, a teacher can, can actually see... Um, a student's screen, right? Um, and in a lot of cases, um, this is useful because they can see when a student is actually getting stuck. Um, so just like a teacher kind of walking around a classroom as you're you know, doing a problem in class, she would actually have to look over and see, are you kind of you know, stuck on this problem and ruminating and trying to come up with a good solution? And she can kind of just you know, help you kind of jump through that. Or now can a teacher be at the front of the room and he can just uh, see in real time where students are getting stuck, where they're getting off task, and like 
essentially make that intervention in a way, right? Which is really what education is, is how do you intervene at the appropriate times to have the most impact and to help them get where they need to go. Cody, your role as product manager here, are there other product managers or are you sort of the guy? Tell us a little bit about how the organization is set up to flow. Totally, so right now um, we have two product managers. Um, we had uh, one one of our product managers actually had come from, um, he was an engineer who built an, an, the entire teacher product by himself. Um, wow. And so, yeah, it, we'll just I say, might have to edit that out because other people will be listening and then they'll say, oh, we just need one developer. The, the yeah, folks yeah. at GoGuardian did it. <laughs> Fair. Um, I will say he is one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever met. He like had user experience and he was like a user experience guy and he was a developer and he very much thinks as a product manager. And so he kind of naturally did all of that early testing and iteration and then kind of came to a product and then kind of became a product manager and then was like, I don't really like product management. I'm going back to be a to, to be the architect. He didn't like product management. No. Huh. How come? Uh, because oftentimes a, a product manager is both the face for a product, responsible for a product, and responsible for communicating about that product, right? Both internally and externally. Um, and so he liked being the guy who came up with ideas and tested them and like was kind of in the nitty gritty and got to like have the calls and write the code and then see if it worked and, and kind of go back and forth there and versus like I'm sending an email to the company about the feature we're releasing next week and here's how we're testing it and who has access today and managing a backlog and a roadmap and those types of things. So it was like I'll go back to being the the essentially like MVP builder. Right. Well, again, just further testament to what we were talking about earlier, which is like knowing where you want to be and then equally knowing where you don't want to be. Yeah. Okay. So two product managers. Yeah. So we have two product managers. We report uh, directly to the CEO in this case, um, who, as we said, the CEO is essentially the early product manager at GoGuardian, right? Because um, he was the one talking to the users and figure out what they wanted. And he wrote the code, which hopefully we've deleted most all of it at this point. Um, <laughs> But uh, but so he was so he's still very much a product CEO. Um, so we report de- directly to him. We uh, work very closely with our um, design and engineering teams. Um, that's kind of where the the tightest loops are in terms of processes um, and making sure that we are building the right things as fast as possible. I also then in in our roles we are um, essentially you would call those the CEOs of the product. Um, every organization is going to have uh, a product manager that falls in a different spot. Um, And uh, there's actually some great resources. Um, I want to say it's pragmatic marketing um, is a a great tool. I think there's also serious decisions, uh, S-I-R-I-U-S. And they all kind of have a mapping of all the different responsibilities of a product manager. And at one end, you have the very strategic the strategic needs, right, which is I need to understand the market and I need to understand the competitive landscape and I need to understand um, the funding environment and I need to understand uh, the the vision of both the company as well as the market for the next few years. And at the other end, you have the very like tactical, which is I'm writing a roadmap and I'm hopping on calls with like special customers to like get sales and I'm um, kind of very much involved in like the sales and marketing and like 
those pieces at the at the at the end. Um, and then kind of there's like the middle, which is you can play on like both ends. And so oftentimes there's called I think. At the strategic end, oftentimes you would be referred to as like a strategic product manager. At the other end, they would oftentimes be called a technical product manager. And then I think product owner has started to be kind of like a little bit of the world in the middle. But the challenge is sometimes you, as a product manager, you could be at any one of those or all of those um, at any one time. Yeah, no, it's, again, it goes back to the benefit of having kind of a a wild looking path because if any of those past experiences that you've done this is another thing that i offer up as advice to people is if you don't have the product manager title well number one i'll now i'll start telling them go check out cody he didn't have the product manager title he's doing just fine but if you don't have the title on paper probably you already have a lot to leverage against the role you just don't necessarily know it yet and so looking at the different things that you've done unpacking what did i really do in that role and you know if it was a marketing role if it was an engineering role if it was something completely unrelated certainly there's experience that you can take and sort of re reframe through the lens of a product manager because a product manager is a great generalist. And I, I think you nailed it on the head. I think the the requirement of a product manager is almost to be the generalist. You have to have enough experience or understanding or perspective of every other piece of the organization to be able to effectively, um, to be effective, not even not even anything beyond that, but just to be effective, you need you need enough understanding of what the engineers are coding, right? You need to understand understanding of how long it takes to design something and and how your salespeople are going to sell it, right? Each one of those things is is required knowledge to be as effective as possible. Well, since we're playing here in the sandbox of practical advice for folks, let's transition to a segment we like to call get the job, learn the job, love the job. Perfect. Whenever I set this up for guests, I always feel like a talk show or game show host. We're about to enter into the lightning round. It's not a lightning round, but... uh, What advice beyond skills, which we discussed a little earlier, but just like what advice would you offer to somebody who is looking to get into product management? Great question. So as a starting point, I would say think like a CEO. Um, And I say that because you are then having to understand kind of all the driving forces, right? What does the market need? What is the problem that you're solving? who's your competition, what's your advantages. Um, If you start to think about that on a regular basis and you're having an idea and you're like, wait, I have an idea, how much would it cost to build? How, what would be the returns? And so you're kind of ask, starting to ask yourself these questions. So I would say, say starting from that mindset, kind of really thinking about you being the owner of uh, whatever, whatever you're driving forward. Uh, second, I would say uh, diving into the, the actual data, right? So if I wanted to be a product manager at, let's use Uber for an example. Um, Although they're not a really popular example right now. Okay, so this let's place in history. Let's, let's use Lyft. Okay, <laughs> Lyft just donated a couple million to the ACLU, right? So they're a little bit more popular. Um, to become an Uber, uh, a product manager at Lyft, right? Uh, I should understand their market, right? So what's a great way to show that 
that I understand their market. Well, uh, let's say I'm gonna walk into an interview at Lyft or I'm gonna try and talk to somebody at Lyft. How do I leverage the resources that I have available to me to best understand their market and their users? So one is, I, have I used Lyft? Right. The, yeah, of course, I have it on my phone. I've used it. I've actually compared it to Uber. I can speak for why I like one versus the other. What are the, the, what are the benefits? Have you talked to some Lyft drivers, right? Versus do they like Uber? Do they like Lyft? Why do they like one versus the other? Well, I can tell you like the Lyft drivers that I've talked to liked it because they can get uh, their money like that day if they make more than $50, right? So that's, uh, and then second, I can also get some data by doing something really simple like launch a survey, right? So I could just launch a survey about why people like one versus the other. And now I actually have real data, right? This is- You're talking about launching a survey for a company you don't even work for. Don't even work for it, but but it takes like, that would take me 15 or 20 minutes, Right. right? To get feedback. And now if I'm going to walk into an interview or even just have an informational interview with like somebody at the company, um, I'm actually now like thinking as a product manager. Like how do I make your product better? How do I make your company better? And so you're, you're literally starting to think in those, in those mindsets. And when you walk in, you're always going to have, uh, you know, like a better positioning than you would if you were just, I want to be a product manager and I think it's a good idea for you to hire me. Yeah, I think it's a great companion piece to what we discussed earlier about agency, which is also having intention if you're on a job search. So part of it is I want the product manager role and experience, but then the other part of it is where do I want to begin to get that experience, you know, at which organization. And so I think it's really practical advice to say to somebody, take a minute, learn about the organization. And it might end up meaning that you have to learn about a lot of different organizations as part of your job search, but either way, that's research that's that's going to benefit you, both from assimilating information perspective and also showing up to an interview kind of prepared. Although I am always curious, and you know, you, you participate a lot, I think, in the recruitment process here as well. I am always curious about how prospective hiring managers, like where is the line between I've done a lot of research about your company and I don't know about this person coming in and telling us a bunch of problems that we need to fix. Um, I would even go farther and I would say if somebody walked in and pointed out a problem to me that I didn't already have knowledge of, I would figure out how to pay them money to help me solve my problem, even if maybe they didn't get hired. Like here, let, just I'll just pay you to like help help me solve this problem. Um, but subsequently, right, it would show that that they had agency, that they that they looked at, and this might get philosophical for a second, but looked at how to looked at their frustrations as problems to be solved. Right, and so to zoom out, the more that you that you look at a frustration or a challenge as just a problem that you need to come up with a solution with, I think is how you can always be the most effective and have the biggest impact and and achieve what you want to achieve. Right, in this case, I've said my problem is that I'm not a product manager and I want to be a product manager. Right, and so now I'm actively working to solve this problem. And in that case, now it's not I failed to get a job or I didn't get hired from this interview. Now it's I have data that shows that like this wasn't a good approach. And so now I need to shift it and I need to try something different. And so now it's just like iterating on finding the right solution to the problem that I have. And that can be applied in product management of 
what do I need to do that's going to be the most impactful thing for my product? Or it can be applied like across a, uh, your life as well. Of like what's the most frustrating thing you're dealing with and approach resolving that as if it's a problem to be solved. Yeah, absolutely. Your, your life is a product. Your career path is your first roadmap. The skills that you need to go out and learn, starting with empathy, is your foundation. I love it. Go and solve that problem. Definitely. And, it, and it takes the, the emotion out of it in an important way, I think, as you're describing it, because now it's not, I'm not good enough, I'm not the right person, I'm not smart enough, whatever sort of self-deprecating belief system. And it just changes it to, this is what I have to fix. You know, the funnel is broken. And all of those are skills that you will use, right? Where are we having attrition? Let's stitch this up. Let's optimize this. Let's pivot, whatever. Exactly. I'm just going to see how many terms I can throw out. <laughs> we, wanna, we could throw synergy in there, right? Um, <laughs> Innovation is oh, important. man. Lab. <laughs> startup. We'll just throw startup. You just That term always gets people excited these days. All right. Well, so what about the hard stuff? Where have you either personally or witnessed in others product managers struggle in doing the job? Building on what we said earlier, right, seeing things as problems to be solved and delving into them, um, I would say I have learned a ton of things, some of them very painful and some of them very expensive lessons along the way. Um, but what I would say has been, at least in, in my, my past experiences um, and the ones I've seen other people struggle with the most, has often been especially in product, has been the implicit expectations versus the explicit expectations. And I'll say this is even much more uh, relevant in early stage companies. And in regards to a product manager, a product manager's implicit expectation is that they are going to do the most impactful things to benefit the company through their product. And that expectation is not one that's communicated like on paper and it's not going to be a KPI, right? It's not going to be increase the revenue from, you know, $1 million to $2 million over the next 18 months through like through these efforts. It's zooming out and saying, what is with my skill set, with my expectation, with my knowledge, where should I be spending my time the most in the most impactful way versus an explicit expectation, which is um, like I mentioned earlier, is like here's what you should accomplish at your 30 days, here's what you should accomplish at your 60 days, here's your um, you know the things we're going to measure you against. Here's you know in in GoGuardian we use OKRs, right, uh, objective and key results, but that is kind of the the result of choosing the things that are most impactful. And oftentimes that's a stumbling block because it's hard. It's easy to get into the weeds and say, like, here's my roadmap and this is what we're knocking down. Here's how many points we're, you know, going to finish this week. And this is what's in this sprint. And this is, you know, my roadmap for the next 12 months um, without ever, like, stopping and zooming out and saying, is it actually that I haven't trained the salespeople on uh, how to effectively sell my product? Right. Have I leveraged different sales channels? Right. Are these are these things that I would be way more impactful to do than actually like get into the the API docs with the engineers to like to, to determine what how we're going to write, uh, you know, the code at the end of the day. So I think that's that's a big stumbling block and really understanding implicit expectation of a product manager is to make the most impact they possibly can versus the explicit ones, which are the ones handed to you on a sheet of paper or, you know, a Google Doc to say, here's what you should be doing. 
Well, this, this has come up in other conversations as well, which is the tendency to get stuck and or comfortable in the tactical because it's familiar and it's knowable and it's completable. You can cross it off the list at the end of the day. You can mark tickets as, as accepted. And I think what I'm sort of hearing you say to build on that, that theme is you're probably not going to walk into a product manager role where somebody explicitly says to you, think strategically, think about how to steer this ship, think about what we're not thinking about, look under this rock. And so you have to kind of take up that, that power. And that can be certainly scary if you're coming at it new and certainly scary if you're not used to having been in environments that encourage you to look for problems that other people haven't found already. And I would even go farther and say this is oftentimes the the role of the product managers to really understand the business, the market, the space, the customers, figure out what those things are. And then not only that, but get the buy-in, like come up with a solution, a plan to go forward and then get buy-in that that's the best one using the data set that you have. And then if you get get into a spot where you, you know, have a conflict, now the conflict is about what is the data that they have? What is the data that I have? What information do I need to like close the gap between those two mindsets and perspectives? And that's when, you know, the rubber meets the road in terms of now I got to now I got to actually have the right data and I got to convince them and I got to you know, uh, plan out what I'm doing and why we're doing it and how this is going to be the best road forward. But it's also a call to action for greatness, potentially, if you're willing. Reach for the gold ring, as they say. Hopefully. Um, what do you love about product? What's your favorite thing about being a product manager? Yeah, so I would start from the fact what I really enjoy, right? So at the end of the day, I'm seeking a state of flow. Right, which the it's very you know abstract or You're getting um, philosophical spiritual, again. if you want to use that one. But um, but in, in my in my in my mind mindset is that um, the more that I am in kind of this like optimal state where I'm really excited to be what I'm do doing what I'm doing, and I'm I'm waking up every day with with like almost kind of a call to action, right? Not one that's given to me, but one that's internal, um, and that that motivation is really when I'm going to be both having the steepest learning curve possible. Um, I'm going to be challenging myself on a daily basis. So to come back to, to why I really enjoy doing what I'm doing and why it's a good fit. One, I really enjoy um, being around intelligent, quality, amazing human beings that, that push me to be better, right? And so oftentimes a product role requires you to interact with the leaders at every point of the company, right? And uh, GoGuardian in particular, um, but I would say almost any company, those leaders are by definition going to be the people who are uh, pushing the hardest and the most driven and the most motivated. And, and that's kind of the people that I want to surround myself with because you become a reflection of the people closest to you. Subsequently, right, I feel like anybody in a product role um, also has kind of this need for need for self-importance, right? To, to go back to a Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, mindset, there's there's this kind of there's this kind of drive that that is inherently like I want to feel like I am doing things that are valuable, that I am doing things that are important, that I am um, making an impact, and that I am kind of have some control over over which direction this ship is steering. So that's also really important to me. And then lastly, I really enjoy in kind of empowering other people, 
and and at the end of the day when I can when I can hand that off to somebody and I can communicate with them in a way that either allows them to grow right I can have a conversation with my designer and explain to them how data algorithms work and why we can't query this data and, and paginate it in this way. Well, you can only do that because you're a data scientist. I've spent, I, I did nerd out way too hard for a while there. Um, then I can have that conversation and then they can become a better designer, right, through that process. Right. Um, and subsequently, I can have a conversation with our sales team and say, hey, here's the problems we're really trying to solve, right? And here's the, here's the pain points that are, uh, that our customers are really experiencing, and now they become they become a more effective salesperson. They achieve what they want to achieve. They grow in ways that they want to grow, right? And and you literally kind of become this agent of change, right? And growth throughout the entire organization by being able to empower those around the organization to really become who they want to be. I love that. Speaking of empowerment, do you have any recommended? resources, learning that you want to share with our listeners who are also on the path to empowering themselves into new roles? Yeah, so from a starting point, right, I think there's a lot of product management books that are out on the market that I have a feeling you're going to do a much better job recommending than I <laughs> than I can in this sense, um, such as, uh, what is it, there's like Bridging, Bridging the Gap or Innovator's Dilemma or some of those. Um, Lean Startup actually is a great example. Um, but what I would say, one of the things that has been the most impactful for me is actually um, a mindset change. And I'll say uh, the mindset change in this case is something called the growth mindset. Um, it comes out of a, um, a psychology professor at Stanford um, called Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. Um, and what she found was that if you tell someone that they're intelligent and I give you a puzzle, if you start to get stuck on that puzzle, you've now created cognitive dissonance between the image you have of yourself as intelligent and the fact that you're struggling, which means you're not intelligent. And so you'll quit earlier. Versus if I praise someone for working hard, then when they are taking the same puzzle, they are now going to think they're a hard worker. And so they will work harder and longer on the same puzzle um, before giving up. And so what happens is over a long period of time, you will see that people who value the effort put forth versus the um, image of themselves for like being intelligent or smart or capable or um, a problem solver, whatever those things are, allows you to have much better results over time when you get frustrated and upset. And the more frustrated and the more upset you are, that is where you have the biggest opportunities for growth. Because now, if you see that as a problem, right? So um, I'm upset, I'm mad, I can't convince my leadership team that I'm right and that the things they're trying to say are like incorrect, right? As opposed to getting disenfranchised and disillusioned and saying like, well, I have the right data and they have the wrong data and that's just the wrong, it's the wrong way to go about it versus saying, why? Why is that the case and how do I solve this problem? And then it becomes this, iterative feedback loop where you just tighten the loop over time because when I get frustrated, I say this is a problem to be solved. I solve the problem. I solve it not only for this time, but probably the next time that same problem comes up. And in conjunction, I've now reinforced this mindset that the next time I get frustrated, it's a problem. 
and I can solve this problem. When I solve this problem, I will be better off. So you kind of just continue continue to get to a better state of mind, um, closer to where you want to be as like a human being. Also, like your daily life just becomes an iteration on problems to be solved and the continuous improvement and closing the gap between that and where you want to be. All right, you're right. That's a much better answer than The Lean Startup. (laughs) Although you're absolutely right, it's a great book too. In a lot of ways, I think what you're just describing and and the way you were describing it sounds like it, it informs the way that you live. But one of the things that I often ask to the guests here on the show is in closing, which I'm gonna ask to you is, do you have sort of a personal mantra or quote or philosophy that does guide you personally, professionally, or both? Something you wanna share with our listeners? Yeah, I'll say one of the things that has kind of has been the driving force of of who I am as a human being um, has been the idea of entelechy. Entelechy is from Aristotle. Um, It's the idea between the difference between potential and actual. And it's the moving between what is potential and what is actual. So for lack of a better word, right, actualization, self-actualization, achieving your own potential. Um, And so I've applied this to myself in the sense that I want to be the best version of myself possible. I want to achieve my own potential. Subsequently, uh, so I've kind of optimized my life in this way. So I surround myself with people that push me forward, right? Even when I when I get frustrated or upset or scared or, or in pain, I have people that like push me to be better. Um, subsequently, it helps me actually take the people around me and help them kind of achieve their own potential. Because when you look out, you just see we're operating, you know, so much lower than where so many of us could be. And subsequently, uh, and why I, I'm, I, I ex- work in the education space is because if you apply, if you continue to apply this, you know, in a concentric circle fashion from myself to those around me, to those I can impact, to the larger scope, you eventually start to get to this kind of idea of like global actualization. And if you if you look around the, the face of the planet, right, we have you know, point, wait, 0.001% of what we could actually be accomplishing with the close to 10 billion people that we're closing in on in the next few years. And if each one of those people was able to achieve their own potential, right, the, the leveling up of global civilization would just be um, immense. And so, so the more we can kind of move towards that uh, and the more we can kind of frame our thoughts around that, at least mine personally, the more I'm able to feel like I have an impact and, and it kind of reverberates. It's uh, what is Simon Sinek uses like the why at the center of the circle. That's my why. And it just kind of flows into everything that I do. Cody Rice, thank you so much. Your insights are thoughtful and uh, I think spiritual is a perfectly acceptable word to use. We invited onto the show and really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to share these ideas with us. listening to 100 p.m. the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com if you haven't been to our site please check it out we have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business i'm your host Susanna bate join me here we've got a new conversation every tuesday we'll see you next time